This, this is the Second Second Story Podcast. Welcome back to the Second Story Podcast. I'm Liv Ove. Second Story recently celebrated the launch of its 20th season, which has had me thinking a lot about our mission statement. One tenet of Second Story's mission is this. We want to live in a world driven by empathy. The root of the word empathy is the Greek path, meaning feeling. But that same root can also be translated as disease. I think it's interesting that both of the root's translations are based in the body, the center of physical and emotional experiences. It makes the process of feeling empathy more literal. Like I might conceptualize empathy as an emotional, transcendent thing, but I'll never understand until I'm in someone else's skin. So today, we're kicking it back to 2016 with a story from our show, In My Own Skin, Stories of the Body. Second Story is proud to present Jessica Young. girl to be sure, but not so old that every now and then I wouldn't still play with dolls if I was bored. That Saturday I was in the rec room playing with my Barbies. White Barbie was the stereotype. Tall and booby, sky blue eyelids, a permanent pink lipped smile. Black Barbie looked pretty much the same, but was the color of mahogany brown plastic. Darker than my skin tone, lighter than my mother. Also, Black Barbie was an astronaut. She had a fuchsia and silver lame spacesuit and matching helmet and boots. She was cool. I mean, yeah, I swapped their outfits. I took their clothes off and made them have sex with each other. They took turns doing Ken. But Black Barbie was my favorite, not just because she looked like me, but because Black Barbie was trying to get shit done. I was on my knees in front of my plastic dollhouse rooting around for clothes I could put on them when I heard my mother's voice cut through my quiet play. Jessica, what are you doing? Get up off your knees. If you crawl around like that, you'll ruin your knees. I was startled, but accustomed to her impatient, how many times have I told you tone of voice. Obediently, I stood up and crouched beside the house. Sorry, mom. Shaking her head, she turned from the doorway, and I heard her ascend the stairs. Not taking weight on your knees and elbows was a big deal to my mom. She was always warning me that if I spent time on my knees or with my elbows on tables, the skin on my joints would turn black. When she wasn't admonishing me, she was admiring my skin color. Your color is just perfect, she would say, the perfect blend of your father and me. My father is also black much lighter than both my mom and me. Even as a girl, it felt funny that she thought I was pretty because my father's skin color had tempered the darkness of her own. I didn't know why she said such things. My mother has the skin and cheekbones of Viola Davis. When I brought friends home, they'd say, your mom is really pretty. I knew it, my dad knew it, even perfect strangers knew it. My mom seemed to be the only person who didn't know. In college, I would learn the word color struck and think sadly of my mother. When I hit puberty, the big deal became my face. 
My mom made it her mission to impress upon me a skincare regimen that would keep my face clear, which would lead to popularity, fun, boys, but absolutely nothing else. I was 15, in the bathroom, getting ready for school one morning, and she knocked on the door. Here, Jessica, she said, handing me a brown tube with pink letters. This is my moisturizer. I want you to use it on your face and neck, okay? I'd seen her use this for years, sitting in her bathroom, watching her apply this cream before going to bed or getting ready for work. Now I was finally old enough to use this cream, this tool of beauty and womanhood. Oh, I was so excited. I dutifully rubbed a dime-sized dollop on my face twice a day for months. One day, my dad looked at me with wide eyes and asked why my face was so much lighter than my neck. Hmm. Too much ambi, my mother said, nodding and looking at me closely. Horrified, I ran to the bathroom and discovered that while my neck was a brown I recognized, my face had turned sallow and yellow-tinted like the bottles of white girl foundation I saw at the drugstore. That makes your face lighter? Well, sure, sweetie, what did you think it did? She was standing in the doorway, watching me. I thought it was moisturizer, that's what you said it was. Well, it is moisturizer, but it also lightens your skin and fades dark spots. I opened the medicine cabinet, grasped the tube, and looked for the words. Skin bleach, lightning cream. By then, I knew that my mother's harping about clear, light skin and using lotion and staying off my knees came from a place of deep insecurity inside her. But I'd never considered that she'd try to teach me that stuff, too. How could she share this with me and not tell me the truth about what it was? I felt deceived by her, like she'd handed me a tube of her special brand of self-loathing and I'd been ignorantly smearing it all over my face. Take this. I don't want it anymore. What is the problem? She looked confused and a little irritated. I don't want to make my skin lighter. That might be who you are, but it's not who I am. But honey, what if you need it? Why don't you just leave it here just in case? She placed it on a glass shelf at the top of the medicine cabinet and walked out of the doorway. I never used it again. Without even trying, I learned a lot from my mother. Applying a deep shade of maroon lipstick to her mouth, mom would say, make sure you don't put lipstick all the way out to the edges of your lips, Jessica. It makes your lips look bigger. And while we're on the subject, avoid red lipstick and nail polish. It looks trashy. From my mother, I learned to always be fretting over my weight and not to eat anything without thinking, am I eating too much? Will I be able to work this off later? During summer vacation, she'd say things like, you keep sitting around the house, you're going to gain weight and get fat. You don't want to look like me, do you? Most important, she taught me that whatever mess is going on inside me, whatever physical, mental, emotional, or psychic injury I might be dealing with, it should stay inside. On the outside, everything must appear absolutely perfect. I did life this way for almost 30 years. Putting on a false version of myself put me in relationships I didn't want to be in. It sparked a truly destabilizing bout of depression and at its worst led me to nearly attempt suicide. I'm older now. I've done a lot of self-work and had enough distance from my mother that I can feel more compassion for her every day. 
On most days, I treat my body like it belongs to someone I love. I feed my body really well. I take it to yoga. I laugh a lot. I floss. I spend time with people who love and respect me. I can recognize when the little voice inside me is spouting bullshit. It sounds like my mother. And I can ignore it without too much effort. And then I noticed that I was squinting a lot at paperwork at my office. And every couple of minutes at the computer, I would rub my eyes or press the heels of my hands into my sockets. Jess, my honey, said over and over, just go to the eye doctor, OK? So I did. A sunny optometrist's office in the South Loop where a woman my age with stick straight blonde hair made jokes to disarm me as she tried an enormous pair of lenses on my face that looked like the inside of a Swiss clock. I read off blurry letters as she swapped lenses in and out of this contraption. All the while, I could hardly breathe. I'm feeling a little vulnerable about all this, I said to her. You know, nowadays we're asking our eyes to do so much more than they were designed to do. Most people need corrective lenses. This is really normal. Well, normal maybe, but would it be me? I didn't want to draw attention to the fact that I need glasses to read. I didn't know if I would look good, and I didn't know if I would feel good about how I looked. It's probably best if we give you some lenses just for reading and computer use, she said to me, clacking away at the keyboard. Your eyes are healthy, but your vision's at the place where glasses will be helpful to you for reading, and they should cut back on the headache and the fatigue. I sighed and imagined my mother in the room. She'd be sitting in the shadows, a pained Barbie plastic smile on her face, and say something like, it's all right, Jessica. People with glasses look intelligent. Besides, you have great cheekbones. They'll suit your face. All the while, she'd be shaking her head and wishing I'd spent less time on the computer. I remembered the first time I saw my mother in her glasses. I knew she wasn't happy about them. They make me look like an old lady, she'd said. Now, here I was in the same situation. Wearing glasses visibly highlights a vision impairment. I'd felt betrayed by my body before, but never in so public a way. I was anxious about how I'd look in glasses, and the fact that I cared about it made me even more anxious. I thought I'd unlearn this behavior, but I was wrong. I was back in the grasp of an insecurity that felt both brand new and completely familiar. When I came out of the exam room, my honey was waiting to meet me in the gallery of frames. We spent about 15 minutes trying frames on and off my face. Thin frames of model turquoise, Red frames, round, black, Mr. Magoo frames. Each time I put on a pair that he said suited my face, I would turn to the mirror and look at myself. The woman looking back at me was unrecognizable. I finally selected a pair, and the doc said they'd be ready in five to seven days. I spent the next week scouring Pinterest for pictures of black women in glasses. My honey would come to bed and I'd be squinting at the iPad propped up on my knees, my index finger swiping purposefully, my face glowing with blue light. What are you doing, he'd ask. Looking for makeup tips, I'd answer. If I have to wear glasses, I need to step up my eyeliner game. I was just looking for someone who reminded me of me with frames on. Scrolling through my feed, I realized I'd pinned lots of pictures of women, black women, who were striking, gorgeous, and wearing glasses. I hadn't realized until I started looking closely. 
Maybe glasses could suit me so well, but it'd be hard to imagine me without them. Maybe I could fold them into my vision of myself. The next Saturday, I returned to the optometrist and they gave me these. I know, they look good on me. <laughs> my work isn't in applying perfect eyeliner. My work now is making the reflection of me match what I see on the inside. When I pass myself in the mirror, I try to remember that the serious woman in the dark frames is the same person as the girl with dark knees and a brown face. She's just a little more in focus. This story was curated by Nick Ward, directed by Jessica Kadish, and music and sound design by Ben Zeman. The Second Story podcast is produced by me, Liv Oaf. Second Story is supported by the MacArthur Fund for Art and Culture at the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation, the Gaylord and Dorothy Donnelly Foundation, a city arts grant from the City of Chicago Department of Cultural Affairs and Special Events, the Chicago Community Trust, the Arts and Business Council of Chicago, the Illinois Arts Council Agency, the Arts Works Fund for Organizational Development, and many generous individuals like you. I'm Liv Oaf, and this, this is the Second, Second Story Podcast.